Well, good morning. Great to see you guys. Very excited for our small groups to get kicked off this week. Let me just give a a little bit of a plug for small group ministry, what we call our covenant groups here. Um, You know, church is definitely this meeting on a Sunday. This meeting features opportunities for us to come together and corporately honor and worship God with all of our hearts and to pray and seek him together to minister to one another and to hear God's word preached. And those are essentials. Any church that exists should have those as essentials. But that's not all that the church is. And so as much as this meeting is a big part of who a church is and who we are, uh, the church is called into a relational connection, a fellowship with one another, where there is, is real friendship and, and real care and support for one another that takes place. And, and that just can't take place here on Sunday mornings, right? This is, a, this is a great meeting for other things to get accomplished. But apart from a little break like that and some interaction with one another, we, we're just not catching up in depth you maybe walked in here with some real things that are tugging on your heart, and it was kind of awkward for you to say, somebody walked up and said, hey, how's it going? You didn't say, well, can you sit down? <laughs> this is going to take a while. Um, you, that's not how you greeted that moment, but, but you need those moments, right? And, and we need to be able to connect with people, and that's what small groups allow for us to do. They're, most of them are taking place in someone's home. Um, there's meals that are often eaten together. There's times just to, to care for each other. There's times for prayer and for ministry to each other. So listen, if that's a foreign experience for you, this is a great time just to jump in and test the water and see if God will give you some faith to be involved and make some time and some room for people. Uh, so look on that list. If you hadn't signed up, there, every one of our leaders would welcome you. If you just showed up at their house on whatever night they're meeting, just said, hey, I just you know, didn't get a chance to register, but I'm here. They will welcome you. So that's not even a question. Make yourself at home. Um, we'd love to have you guys. Um, all right, well, we finished up Summer Bible Jam last Sunday. Uh, we studied Hannah's life. And Hannah was an interesting person that God used Hannah and the conditions and the difficulties and, and, the, and the hard things of her life to begin to form prayer in her that, that reshaped the world and her world that she lived in. And there's something significant about that that I just had my attention was drawn to that and the Lord just kind of stirred some things in my heart. So this message this morning and a couple of messages after it are, are a little bit of a Holy Spirit audible. This was not where we were going to land uh, at this point. We were going back into 1 Corinthians, which I'm very eager to get back into that book. Uh, but, but we're going to take some time and, and camp out in one verse and we're going to take apart 26 words that are in that verse and we're going to look at them carefully in, in a message that's called A Throne of Grace. Um, I, I wouldn't ask for a show of hands on this, but, but how many of us would say your prayer life, which is a very important dimension of being a Christian, your prayer life could use a booster shot? I, mean, I'm not, I don't know if I could ever stand in front of an audience and ask that question and not get a, yeah, 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 kind of a thing. Um, and I'd love to tell you this is going to be the series that forever fixes that. 
I'd love to tell you that. And there are people who sell books that way, right? They sound like they've got the prayer model, the thing. And I was like, this is going to fix you. Can I just break some news to you? And then this will save you from buying a lot of books, by the way. Um, your prayer life is kind of like a paper airplane. Designed this myself. Thank you very much. All right. So at some, yeah, that's right. Me desperate to use my engineering background. Um, so at some point, and I'm hoping this morning is going to be one of those points. You're going to, the Holy Spirit's going to prompt something in you about prayer. And you're going to say, yeah. And it's going to be an amen in your heart. And you're going to step forward. And Monday's going to be different. And, and next week is going to be different. And maybe a prolonged season where it's going to be different. right? But for, for many of us, this would not be the first time that's ever happened. Right? We've read a book on prayer. We attended a, extended meetings with folks. We had a series on prayer. Something awakened something else. So in that awakening... Off went our prayer life. And, and, yeah, and it had some level of flight to it. And then it, that's where we find our prayer life. And then we've got to go over and pick it up. And we hear a message and we get convicted. And we read something by Tozer and something by Andrew Murray. And we're like, oh my gosh, I'm not even saved. I need to pray. And we pick up our prayer life again. And we, and we do that. And, and it flies for a little while. And, and down it goes. Um, <clears throat> Listen, there's a reason why this happens. And, and, you know, all of us can take some level of responsibility for it. But, but the, the reason why this happens is because you live in a fallen world where there's lots of frictional forces. So if you ever bought the idea that there's anything about your Christian life that is going to be like something that flies in outer space. How many of you guys know if I threw this in outer space, I wouldn't have to go throw it again? It would just keep going and going and going. But that's outer space and you're not in outer space. And you're not in heaven either. Heaven's like outer space. There's no frictional forces. There's no temptation. There's no fallenness there. It's a recreated place that God has made everything perfect. That's not where you are now. So if you're finding that your walk with God needs regular maintenance and needs sometimes pretty severe maintenance, you're not alone and that's normal. So if you're here this morning, you're like, oh my gosh, this is like the 10th prayer message that I've just felt like, oh my, what is wrong with me? I'm not even a Christian. Why don't I pray? Um, Just pick your prayer life up and throw it again. And then somewhere in the future, you're going to have to pick it up and throw it again. Okay. So Hannah helps us to jump into this topic because she picked up a prayer life and prayed out of the burden of her own soul but prayed into the kingdom of God's activity in an amazing way that brought the kingdom to bear on her situation, on real-life events that were happening. And, and you and I are living in a time of, I think I'm accurate to say it, of great darkness. There's a great spiritual darkness in our part of the world, even in the realm of Christianity, there is much spiritual darkness and what's going to break into that darkness? Because we, we stand before God and we pray for your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, prayer is the launching point, the breaking in of light into dark places. And that's what Hannah's life provided, such a great opportunity for us to see. But whether it is America as a nation, whether it is the church world in the Western Hemisphere, 
whether it's your family at home, whether it's you as an individual who finds yourself in a dark season, can I, can I just tell you, God often brings light into darkness through prayer. Prayer becomes the vehicle through which God invades that dark place. So before you're going to see a break in some of that darkness, we're going to see prayer taking place. And that's what I hope this will help us to do. So let's look at our 26 words here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, over the next couple of messages, we're just going to take this verse apart. I just want you to stare at some of these words for a second. And that's a familiar verse to us, and I'm grateful that it is. Many of us draw insight from it. But, but stare at these words for a moment. There, there's this word confidence, right? This is a verse with an attitude. There's going to be a particular mindset that when we get this verse and put it on, it's going to, there's going to be something inside of us. We, we feel a certain way as a result of what this verse imparts. We, we feel a sense of confidence. And then we, we draw near. There's, there's movement in this verse. There's action on our behalf in this verse, right? So we're just not staring at something that's calling us to, which the Bible does often, and we need to do with excellence, to learn how to stand still and just watch what God has done and who he is. Just stand and watch and learn from that. But, but this is a verse that's actually going to call on you to take action. So in addition to seeing something about God, our response to seeing something is not going to be to sit still. We're going to take action and there's going to be movement in our lives. So we're going to open up our lives at one point and then we're going to move and find ourselves in a different location. There's something that we'll learn about today called a throne of grace. And there's a little passage in here we'll take apart later, receiving, there's a receiving and a finding of something in this verse. So we're actually going to receive mercy and we're going to find grace. So at some moment, this verse treats us like that's out of arm's reach. Mercy and grace, though we know they exist, they're, they're not going off in our lives in a certain way until this movement takes place. And then we're going to acquire mercy and grace in this exchange with God. And we're going to find some help. There's help in this verse. And then we're going to talk a little bit, and we'll do this today, about times of need. Right? The Bible's introduction to prayer is in times of need. And we sang a good bit about that this morning to really posture our hearts to receive from this verse. So let's talk first about that. Times of need. This verse is recognizing something. You're going to be living life and suddenly there's going to be this time of need that you are aware of. What what exactly is that? I want to ask some really basic questions about some of these words. Like need. What, What exactly is need? What is that? All right, here's my definition in your outline. It is that moment or those seasons or those encounters where what we bring to the table isn't sufficient for that setting or that situation. That's need. When you and I pull up into doing life and that 
that season of our lives, we survey it. What is it going to take for me to live right here? And then we look at what we got and we go, I, I can't do that. That's need. We get into a relationship. The relationship takes on characteristics that we are unfamiliar with. You marry somebody that you thought you'd figure them out. You didn't. You get into a conflict with somebody at work. You get hired by somebody who's totally different than you. And you have no idea. They just blindside you left and right. And you don't know how to respond to that. Right? There's not an adequacy in you. That's need. You stare at the month. Or you stare at the coming season of your family's needs and you look at your bank account and you look at what's coming and you look back at your bank account and you go, this doesn't work. That's need. And so the real question for us is, what response does need engender in you? When you bump into that, and you're going to bump into it a lot, what response goes off on the inside of you? Right? Two responses that came to mind as I thought about this a little bit. There is the response of, of human ingenuity, right? Need or necessity is said to be the mother of invention. So when you get yourself in these moments where this is in over my head or what I have doesn't work for this situation, we get creative in that moment. We build things. We invent things. Right? This is where weapons of war have come from. We've got to protect ourselves, so we're going to have to build fortresses, and, and we need to overcome, and we need to take advantage of other people's enemies, and we're going to build weapons and spears and bows and arrows, etc. We invent things because we have a need for them. It's amazing that device in our pocket is an evolution from ideas long ago. Right? At some point, somebody was putting up telegraph wires, and, you know, doing kind of a thing. They invented that at some point as a means of communication and, and that just kept getting changed, right? So human ingenuity, some of us kick in the gear. When we encounter need, we go to work and we might go to work exhaustively, go to work like crazy. And listen, that's not all wrong. I'm not trying to say, oh, that sounds like the wrong response. Uh, you know, the, God gave man a responsibility to manage and subdue the earth. He was supposed to be creative, so he was supposed to engage life and bump into something and go, hey, what do I do with this? And get busy thinking it through. So that is a dimension that we should do. Need doesn't involve just no activity on our part. But, but that other sense that comes to us, when we bump into need, it, it, there's more of this emotional dimension as well. This sense of insecurity, vulnerability, we step into this future that looks like it's headed in a direction that I didn't anticipate that. And all of a sudden there's questions that just kind of get installed over people in our lives and over situations in our lives and over the finances of our lives. And we don't have answers for it. So we feel, we feel vulnerable, right? Need puts us at front row seats for vulnerability in our own soul because we don't know how this is going to get fixed. How does this get met? And, and listen, quite honestly, I, I, I don't care for that dimension of life. I don't like how that feels. I like, I like to pull up the situations where I've got all the answers and I've done this a thousand times. As a matter of fact, I've got more than enough money to pay for that. Yep, yeah, let's do that. I just, that feels good. 
But when you bump into something that you don't feel adequate for, that's need. And, and that's going to travel with us in every category of life. You and I need to learn to make friends with need. Because there's not a category in our life that's going to escape feeling like, I, I ain't got everything that it takes. Physically, we have needs. We have needs for shelter. We have needs for food. We have needs for health in our bodies. Emotionally, we have needs. Right? There's, there's a need for meaningful activity in your life. You, you can't exist when you lose hope and you don't have any sense of purpose about your life. There, there needs to be joy in our life. There's peace that's needed in our soul. Our souls need to be restored. Right? So we have emotional needs. We have spiritual needs in our lives. And, and notice all these are a little bit different. So sometimes we, we just think we just have need. Well, they show up differently, don't they? Spiritually, I have a need to worship. I'm a creature who's been designed to worship. Something in me is going to want to find something big and amazing and stand in awe of it and and be dazzled by it and stare at it a lot and be consumed and be obsessive about that. I'm designed for that. And I'm either going to do that with God or I'm going to do it with something else. These are the needs that show up in our world. You have needs for resources in your life. You have to pay bills. You have future bills. So you might, need to, you might have need of an education so that you can live in a westernized culture that's going to have jobs that require education. Well, if you're going to have an education, you've got to go to school. If you're going to go to school, you've got to pay for that. So you have needs all over the place. And these needs, they're little bitty needs when you're a little bitty person. Right? You've got infant needs. But when you got infant needs, you got no help, do you? I mean, you, got, you can't self-help at all. You're an infant. Somebody else is going to have to step in. That need's going to have to get met. And then that need moves, and you become a young child, and then you, you move into teenage years. I mean, you guys recognize teenage years, right? Different set of needs. Needs that freak out teenagers. Who am I? Do I fit in? Does anybody like me? Did I wear the wrong thing today? Am I going to get bullied today? Those are needs that just go off big. Young adults. Midlife needs are different than teenage needs. Elderly needs. You start staring at those when you get a little older, don't you? You've got a fresh set of pains here and there, and you don't know if you've got enough to retire. Well, I just promise you the teenagers in the room, they're not worried about that. <laughs> they don't have fresh pain, and they're not worried about retiring. They don't have a need in that category, but you do, Right? So this is what our life feels like. At every moment, at every turn, you and I are going to bump into this thing called need. right, now this isn't rocket science, but I think I put this in your outline. Simple insight in this raging machine. Creatures are created to need their creator. I know this is really deep. Creatures are created to need their creator. Now, I know in theory, we all say, well, well yeah, but, but when need goes off inside of you, it feels unsettling, vulnerable, uncomfortable, threatening. All right, so that's what it feels like for me to need my creator. I mean, it just sounds better when I just read it that way, right? I'm a creature and I need my creator. That just sounds better. It's more enjoyable. But the internal signature of that is the noise of fear and anxiety and 
I don't know how to do this. And is this going to turn out bad? And will my family suffer as a result because I don't know how to meet that situation? Right? That's need. And God has no intention ever of rescuing us from feeling that. Now be careful because if you examine your, examine your prayer life, you may discover that you spend a lot of time simply trying to pray away how need feels. That could be your biggest time occupied in, in your prayer closet. Right? You bump into something that feels uncertain, painful, whatever, and you just go to work on saying, God, make it stop feeling that way. Ultimately, this is what you're praying. Make it stop feeling that way, God. I, I don't like the way that feels. This is freaking me out. God, do something about that. I, I don't, I'm panicking. Uh, God, make this feeling go away. And that's really what we're praying. Sometimes that's as far as our prayer life gets. It is, God, can you make me feel comfortable? Because need doesn't feel comfortable. Need feels incomplete. Need feels threatening. Need feels like a problem. All right, can all of us just get this news broken to us? We're creatures. We're designed to need. We're designed to look outside of ourselves to find the things that are essential for our existence. Fact, we'll never escape it. Stop asking God to make that feeling go away. Instead, let's learn how to respond to need. And this verse is super helpful, isn't it? Because it acknowledges, in a time of need, what do I do? I move toward a throne of grace. I don't ignore my need. I, I don't curse it. I don't pray for God to stop making me sensitive to feeling like I'm in need. I, that need sensor goes off on the dashboard of my heart. I'm supposed to move toward the throne of grace. And that's what this verse is teaching us. So let's look first at this destination. What is this throne of grace? Well, I just want to pick on two words here. And when we leave today, I want, I want us to make sure that we've caught three words. Need throne and grace, all right? Those are the three words out of the 26 that we're going to go after today. Need, a throne, and grace. And if you don't catch these words, these words inform, motivate, stimulate prayer. So if you don't catch these words, part of what's going to make your airplane fly to the ground faster is that you're not motivated, There's not a motivation to move towards a throne of grace if you don't get that it is a throne of grace. If you don't get that, you will be one, two, three steps removed from even desiring to pray at all. So we need these concepts. We we need to understand some of the imagery that's here because, listen, I'm sure like you, if you can look back over your life, I was praying before I was even sure who God was. I had a prayer life really, really early in my life, before I was saved, before I had a relationship with the living God, I was praying. Where did I get my ideas about how to do that? Which, tough question, where'd you get your ideas about how to pray? And here's a reality, because I guarantee if we did an interview on everybody walking out here and say, okay, let's talk basics and essentials. What does a prayer life look like? you would not get the same description from the hundreds of us that are here. 
you get a, a, an interesting variety of views. You get a cafeteria of stuff. And if I'm going to build my own prayer life, and I'm, I'm not going to be well informed by Scripture, I'm going to build my own prayer life, I'm going to build it out of stuff that makes sense to me. You don't build with things you don't understand. You build out of stuff that makes sense to you. So next thing you know, you've got a prayer life that came out of your own ideas, what you've practiced, what's, what you got around, what religious tradition you were a part of growing up. You've just kind of cafeteriaed, right? You grab a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you put them all together and you said, here's my prayer life. So I had a prayer life that really found its greatest use early in life when I was breaking the law. Right? I was a vandal as a young teenager and I can, I can, to this day, remember, I can remember hiding in bushes because I, I was about to face some severe consequences. And I was praying. I had just broken the law. I mean, just five minutes before. But now, all of a sudden, I had found a prayer life. <laughs> all right, I've known people through the years praying that their girlfriend's not pregnant. All right. I get the desperation, but I'm not sure you kind of get this prayer thing uh, real well. Um, So I I need the imagery that's in this verse. I need to be aware that when I pray, and you need to be aware, when we pray, we come before a throne. A throne. Now, can I just highlight this? Hebrews 4 verse 16 is a verse in the Bible on prayer. It's not the only verse in the Bible on prayer. But we're going to... Sit down in this verse and and learn some things from it. So this is not to negate. I mean, I'm going to say this one time. I'm not going to waste the rest of the time on this. This is not to negate all the other things that the Bible depicts about children coming to God. Children just run to God, right? Let the little children come to me. And, And the spirit of God comes into our heart through which we cry out, Abba, Father. All right, so this is what I mean by cafeteria. If you want to understand what the Bible says about prayer, then you have to include Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 in Abba Father. Well, I, I like the Abba Father version better. That throne thing feels a little formal, intimidating. I like the, Daddy, I'm a little child and I have a need. All right, you know what? I, I don't want to make fun of that at all because that is a means of coming to God and the Bible actually teaches it. So you should have that, but if your personality is drawn to that, and you don't got any room for this over here. Listen, you're not allowed to read the Bible through your personality. And oh my gosh, so many people do that. The Bible is what it is, and you are who you are, but the Bible's not going to move. You're going to need to move. So if your favorite verse is this, because it makes me feel a certain way, oh, I don't read that part of the Bible. I didn't even know what the major prophets had to say. I never picked that up. I just like Psalms and... You know, the epistles, the letters, I like that. You don't get to like parts of the Bible. It's trying to tell you something that's really big all over the place. So I need to know from this verse that there's a throne out there. A throne. And that's a foreign word today. This is funny. I came across this little uh, Google amometer thing. It actually studies how words are used over time and how frequently they're used. So somehow it can, it can check the publishing of a word. So if you check the publishing of the word throne and you graft it over time, it reaches its peak in the 1800s and then it steadily declines and it is at its low today. 
We just don't talk about thrones. Thrones are foreign kind of an idea. Well, here's what a throne is. Definition for a throne. A throne is a ceremonial chair for a sovereign. The synonyms that would be used are sovereign power, sovereignty, rule, dominion, authority, right? So when you come to a throne, that's what you're coming to. Sovereign power, rule, authority. That's what the throne is and what it represents. Now, if you and I were to learn from somebody, if we could bring us in a consultant to help us who are out of step with thrones today, to help us understand a throne, I'm going to invite in a guest today, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to give us some tips on understanding a throne. Now, he's well qualified because he himself had a throne. He is a king. He sat upon a throne. As a matter of fact, he didn't just sit upon a throne that was on the earth. He sat upon the throne during his time. His kingdom reigned over other kingdoms. So one kingdom after another toppled to his. So there was a throne there until his throne came along. And then he overthrew that throne. And then there was a throne in this country until he came along. And then he overthrew that throne. So here's a guy used to understanding what sovereignty looks like. Because he shows up. And he acts with sovereignty and he decrees things and the world around him changed. So he's going to help us with an understanding of thrones. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 28, says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, another throne. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. That's an interesting insight, isn't it? This guy is cruising along. He's got authority. He's messing with the world. He's shaping people's lives. He feels like he's the ultimate mover and shaker on planet earth. Until God just comes along and with one sentence, he's done. One sentence. He's done. Right? And you and I don't, can't appreciate it. I mean, this guy had a kingdom that stretched for miles and miles and miles. People group after people group were underneath his rule. Remember, he's the guy who's going to evacuate Jerusalem and take God's people into exile. And with one sentence, another throne speaks and says, your kingdom is done. That's a throne. And what King Nebuchadnezzar does, King Nebuchadnezzar goes, goes crazy when this happens. His own attempt at sitting on a throne drove him mad. And then God granted by his grace sanity to this man. And this guy who was the guy who took God's people into exile, the guy who conquered and killed thousands, I'm sure, he responds with some rather insightful stuff. And a little bit later, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is after he kind of lost his mind, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This man who knew something about thrones really knows something about thrones now. He encountered the throne of God. And that throne, it doesn't come and go. It's not like Babylon. It's not like other kingdoms that kind of had their day. This, this is a throne that has an everlasting dominion. It's a straight line. God's authority, his power, and his use of that power doesn't do this. God doesn't have power outages. You didn't, you didn't go to heaven and approach God on a bad day. You're not going to go to the throne of grace and somebody's going to greet you at the door and say, hey, can you come back tomorrow? kind of fresh out. They had to run. I mean, it was unbelievable. You know, that's never going to happen. The dominion of God is, is consistently always what it's always been and it always will be. It rules from generation to generation. Can you imagine? Can anybody imagine it rules from baby boomers to millennials? Can you imagine God is still God? I know it's hard to figure out. He accomplishes his will in heaven and on earth amongst the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. Every inhabitant, Nebuchadnezzar, everyone. Aren't there some people who just are really strong-willed and who resist? They've got their reasons. I mean, isn't there a God can't in this sentence somewhere? God can't. Do you all use those words back to back? God can't. They don't really get along with each other. Because this verse seems to say that God does whatever the heck he wants to do. And he fulfills exactly what he decrees. And none can stay his hand. Not you, not me, not your boss. Nothing. This This is the throne of God. Now listen, there are lesser thrones. And those lesser thrones are operating. There are lesser thrones operating in our life today. Nebuchadnezzar was a lesser throne. But what gets illustrated here by our guest is that at any moment, God can visit the lesser thrones of life and say, you're done. This is your last day. That's going to stop now. We're going to start this now. Because his throne is the ultimate throne that rules the universe. How how do you want to approach that throne? What kind of an attitude would you and I have as we approach that throne? No, I know if you cheat and you say, oh, well, you know, Hebrews 4, with confidence, boldness even, some translations say. All right, well, let's, let's hold off on that just for now. Because that's not all the Bible says about this throne. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven. 
and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is just one of many insightful scenes around the throne of God, right? Isaiah's encounter with the throne of God was a, I've told you this before, as a wet your pants experience. It was power off the grid. It was an awareness of the nature of God that had no descriptions for it. This is that throne. So, right, so the same Bible that invites us with confidence is, is inviting us to this. The same Bible that says come as a child is also saying be careful that you recognize when you, before you put words in your mouth. Be careful that you recognize who you're speaking to and where your feet are standing. You are before the throne of God in heaven and, and you are just a little earthling. And your perspective, I mean, some of you can't even see over the person seated in front of you today. How much perspective do you really have? And God has got this aerial view of time and eternity and every factor that moves on the earth. You approach him. Be careful how you do that. Be prepared to encounter this God. It's an interesting insight from Charles Spurgeon here in this quote. One of my favorites messages from Charles Spurgeon and he pulls it from Job's words Job in his time of great need Job says this oh that I knew where I might find him that I might come even to his seat right can you see this approach can you see movement here being described I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Charles Spurgeon picks this thought up in a very helpful way for those of us who would like to learn how to pray. It's kind of a long quote, but stay with me. He says, it appears that Job's end in desiring the presence of God was that he might pray to him. He had prayed, but he wanted to pray as in God's presence. Can you just hold on to that for a week or so from now? He desired to plead as before one whom he knew would hear and help him. Job teaches us how he meant to plead and intercede with God. He does, as it were, reveal the secrets of his closet and unveils the art of prayer. We are here admitted into the guild of suppliants. We are shown the art and mystery of pleading. We have here taught to us the blessed handicraft and the science of prayer. He says, there is a vulgar notion that prayer is a very easy thing. A kind of common business that may be done anyhow without care or effort. He says, the ancient saints appear to have thought a great deal more seriously of prayer than many do nowadays. And nowadays for him is the 1800s. Can you imagine if Charles Spurgeon was speaking today? It seems to have been a mighty business with them, a long-practiced exercise in which some of them attained great eminence and were thereby singularly blessed. They reaped great harvests in the field of prayer and found the mercy seat to be a mine of untold treasures. The ancient saints were wont with Job to order their cause before God. That is to say, as a petitioner coming into court, does not come there without thought to state his case on the spur of the moment, but enters into the audience chamber with his suit well prepared, 
having moreover learned how he ought to behave himself in the presence of the great one to whom he is appealing. It is well to approach the seat of the king of kings as much as possible with premeditation and preparation, knowing that we are about where we are standing and what it is which we desire to obtain. God forbid that our prayer should be a mere leaping out of one's bed, kneeling down and saying anything that comes first to hand. On the contrary, may we wait upon the Lord with holy fear and sacred awe. I don't know if there has ever existed a more casual approach to prayer than the one that exists today. And casual prayer degrades so quickly into meaningless prayer, into prayer ruts that we just get in a rut. We've invented our own list of things that we pray about and we just get in a rut and we're casual. We're not thinking, we're not preparing for that exercise. And then it becomes boring, unattractive. It lacks encounter. We don't walk away from it going fresh mercy and empowering grace from my life. We don't encounter any of that. So guess what? We don't come back. When you stop seeing there's a throne to make your appearance before, you turn prayer into something else and prayer begins to lack its value to us and its impact to us. You know, the imagery here that Spurgeon creates is that of an attorney who's going to make his argument before the judge. And my dear friend Bill Treby that I've known for 30 years or so, uh, I've gotten to listen to him just, you know, hey, what's going on this week? And just talk about life and court cases and preparation. And, and then I actually walked through some legal stuff personally with him and got to watch front row seats. How you prepare for these things, the amount of time that is taken to prepare your argument before this judge, as you think through all the reasons why this judge should rule in your favor and you fill your mouth with arguments and you prepare for all the counter arguments that are going to come as to why this shouldn't take place and you're ready to shoot that one down and shoot that one down and shoot that one down and you go and make your stance before this judge. That's what's being described here. If you've never read this message by Charles Spurgeon, we need to make it available to you. Order and argument in prayer. When you come before the king of the universe, you should come arguing with him. Now, you're going to have to argue from the statutory situations that God has provided. You're going to have to pick up his word on things that he has promised, things that he has done, things that he has decreed that he wants done in his universe. You're going to have to pick those up, lug them like this into your courtroom, set them down at your table and say, King, I'm ready to make my case. I believe you should move in this way for this reason and for this reason and for this reason and for this reason and for this reason. And, this reason. and when the enemy stands and argues against that and your, your doubts stand and argue against that, you're ready to shoot those arguments down and present your case before this king. That's a throne. That's a very different place to go than just... Let's see, I'm caught in a traffic light. Uh, God, just, you know, man, just bless so-and-so, going through a hard time. Uh, uh, 
I'm going to pick on the youth here. I don't know if you guys still do this. If they still do this, Evan, it just needs to be mocked, mocked. But when I was a youth pastor, I was always amazed how many prayers began with the youth group praying for safety between here and home. Lord, just keep us safe as we go home. Keep us Keep us safe. What are we in Beirut? What are you, are you expecting bombs to <laughs> blow up your Humvee on the ride home? You're, you live in Metairie. You live 10 minutes from here. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is you catch a red light. Right? But that's what prayer turns into, right? That's what I mean. But these ruts, we just kind of get in these ruts. And when we hear four other kids prayed that way over the last month, and now it's my turn to pray. Oh, Lord, just keep us safe. Keep us safe. Stop praying for safety. You live in America, for goodness sake. You live in the safest place in the world. Aren't there other things more important than safety? Yes, there are. But that's what we do to our prayer lives. Let me make an argument here for, for ceremony and for preparation. Right, for coming to a setting that, that some preparation is, is critical and essential. Remember Exodus 3, Moses gets this encounter with God. It says, then he said, do not come near. Right, so here's a guy trying to come near to God's throne, to his presence. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. When you and I engage the throne of God, we move on to holy ground ground. We, we would do well to remember this, this isn't common ground. This is holy ground. This is unusual access to the God of the universe. This is peculiar. Remember those images that were in the Old Testament of the presence of God, where there was three layers of veils between the holy of holies and the common person. Don't don't forget these things just because we're New Testament Christians. There's something about the nature of God here. And what does this do for me? Well, I'm going to get to grace in just a minute. But, but what this does for me is, is it, it helps me to prepare my heart to talk to this God, to present my needs to this God. Listen, you, you, you and I live in a world where Prayer can sort of be like just clicking on Amazon.com. It's got about that much thought. We just click on that. We've got, we've got a need. We just purchase that. We just mention it. We click on it. We let God know. Here it is. Expect that to be coming soon. Uh, we, maybe we're complaining because it's taking too long. We're wondering if the shipment got lost. We're kind of complaining to God about that. And God is not Amazon.com. And when I'm doing Amazon.com, I'm not, I'm not purchasing for the kingdom. <laughs> I'm just buying something for me. And prayer can turn into that. Rather than engaging the king who is sovereignly running the universe so that if I'm Hannah and I'm engaging this God, he is in, he's affecting me and I'm aware I'm on earth. You're in heaven. You want me to do what with my three-year-old? You want me to surrender my son? into your purpose, son I've longed for my whole life, I will. And she does, right? Because when you stand before a king who is running a kingdom, your, your life finds its place. And what God is doing beyond just the shores of my little world matter to us when we approach God 
as the God who sits on the throne of the universe. Right? So I need this imagery. If I'm going to pray decently, I'm going to need this imagery, right? Quick, quick look at this next quote. I won't do the whole thing. Spurgeon says, if it be a throne, it ought to be approached with enlarged expectations. Well doth our hymn put it, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. We're coming before the God of the universe to ask for things. What what does that do for my sense of expectation of what scale might this God do what I'm asking him to do? Or are we just asking like he's one of us? But when you lose the sense of the throne room, you lose this. When we pray, we are standing in the palace on the glittering floor of the great king's own reception room. And thus we are placed upon a vantage ground. In prayer, we stand where angels bow with veiled faces. There, even there, the cherubim and seraphim adore before that self-same throne to which our prayers ascend. And, And shall we come there with stunted requests and narrow, contracted faith? See, listen, if all you and I've got going on is stoplight prayers, when I get a second, when I'm on the elevator, which I'm not saying that shouldn't ever happen, but if that's all I know, I I don't know the throne room well. I don't know that I'm standing before the king and there's this sense of electricity going out everywhere, of power from this God. And it's, it's a little scary to be in front of him, but yet I'm invited to come. And I've got a basis to be there. What kind of request do I want to make of this God as I face issues that are coming in my life? Listen, if you and I have lost this vocabulary, we've lost something, haven't we? We've lost something of our prayer life with God. It is a throne, but it is also a throne of grace. A throne of grace. What does that even mean? That word grace. What does that mean? Now it means something in this passage. But I know that when I pick it up and I use it, it means something to you and me. Do we mean the same thing? Does God mean the same thing? All right, so what do you think grace means? Grace. It sounds like gracious, right? Be gracious. What does that mean? Be nice? Grace, the synonym for nice? We come before a throne of nice. Does it mean that it's not, it's not an intense place? It's not, a people, it's not a place where people are all hung up about right and wrong and being so dogmatic about stuff? Is that, is that what's being described here? It, you know, it's a place where God's just kind of chilling. It's gracious, you know? He's laid back. He's in a good mood gracious God, whatever, you come and you're kind of messed up and you just caught God in a good mood today. And he's like, ah, don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. What do you want? You come over here, what you want? I got it. Is that what grace means? Does grace mean universalism? Anybody and everybody can come. They have access to the, to the bank accounts of God, to the the throne, anybody, just anybody. All you got to do, hey, in your hour of need, all you got to do is just, just turn, just talk to God, just go. Well, 
that would scream out that we use the word grace differently than the way the Bible uses the word grace. Does that surprise you? I don't mean to freak anybody out here, but I mean, you do recognize words mean things. And over time, they change their meaning. And so when I say grace, you could say, well, that, that's, just, that's that little thing you do before you eat, right? Grace. I've got a daughter named Grace. I had a neighbor named Grace. I mean, grace is used all over the place. Who's to say that you and I really understand what's being said here? It is a throne of grace. So the idea that nice would be used or just anybody could come, well, that's, that's a problem. Charles Spurgeon says, as prayer will not be truly prayer without the spirit of God, so it will not be prevailing prayer without the son of God. He, the great high priest, must go within the veil for us. Nay, through his crucified person, the veil must be entirely taken away. For until then, we are shut out from the living God. The man who, despite the teaching of Scripture, tries to pray without a Savior, insults the deity. Did you know that prayer can be an insult to God? The idea that in whatever moment, me as a fallen, self-absorbed human creature can just have an audience with the perfect God of all glory at my whim and my call because it's a throne of grace, right? I don't know. What does that word mean to you? And how is it being used here in Scripture? Because the same God who has sat upon the same throne... Do you guys recognize that this didn't become a throne of grace? It's like God didn't like, you know, he had this, but he had another throne before that and he got a new one. Later on, you know, when you keep reading in the Bible, there's a new throne. The same throne. And the means of approaching that throne has always been the same. It's always been grace. But God has taught some things about his presence in Scripture. Right, Hebrews chapter 4, I'm not unpacking all that's around Hebrews, but if you want to unpack Hebrews, by the time you get to this verse, you've already learned quite a bit about the priesthood, about holiness before God, about how the priests have access and how Jesus is a greater high priest than all the other priests that went before him. So by the time we get to this verse, we've already learned something about Jesus Christ that has to do with grace. That's very important. I think I wrote this out in your outline. I'm going to read it to you. For this descriptive word, grace, to mean anything to your time of need and to your prayer life, it needs to be dripping with doctrine. It is set in one of the most doctrinally deep books in the New Testament. Hebrews is banking on you understanding Mount Sinai. If you don't get Mount Sinai, trust me, you don't get Hebrews. The veils, there's veils mentioned throughout Hebrews. The priesthood, there's priesthoods mentioned throughout Hebrews. Where do they get those concepts from? From Exodus. From what we studied at Mount Sinai as God revealed himself. If you don't get these, then you don't understand the word grace. And it is that grace, that word grace, is the reason why that word confidence is in this same sentence. 
And the, the whole idea that we would have access to a throne is wrapped up in that word grace as well. So access and confidence come from that word grace. But if we're going to talk about grace, let me say it this way. You cannot talk about grace without talking about Jesus Christ. The Bible knows of no conversation that exists. So you can't install a throne of nice or a, a, th- that's a throne that's universal, a God who doesn't have any boundaries to him. You can't install that. That's not what that word means. A throne of grace has to be understood in association with Jesus Christ. That word is inextricably linked to Jesus Christ in Scripture. Right? John 1 verse 16 says, From his Fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Where does grace come from? It comes through Jesus Christ. There is no access to God or to his throne to come boldly and confidently apart from Jesus Christ. So no matter what you and I believe, and listen, how much of our, this is the other word I said, if you don't get this word, I promise you, your prayer life will suffer. Because how many of us don't come to God because we're coming on the basis of us and how I'm doing? how I'm feeling, how I'm living out my life, whether I've been good enough or not, rather than coming on the basis of Christ who is connected to this grace. He is the reason why I have access to God. And that's what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is arguing. Hebrews is like a Supreme Court argument for the greaterness of Christ over everything else. That's, I mean, that just one page after another, it's like it's, the book is trying to convince, hey, there was these other things and they were really cool, but this is greater. And, and this priesthood that went before Christ, but his is greater. You know, these veils and, you know, one guy could go behind the veil once a year, but this is greater because he comes and he tears the veil down. Now you have access to God. Everything in Hebrews is about Jesus Christ is greater. And he's the answer to everything the Bible has been about. Grace and truth come to us through Jesus Christ. You and I can't begin to appreciate what it means to get into a prayer closet without understanding grace. So listen, Eric, you can come back up here. If you walk through the bookstore on your way out today, and I hope you do, there's all kinds of books in there that you may be never tempted to read. Sometimes I walk through the bookstore and I'm thinking, why is that book still sitting on this shelf? Why has no one bought this? So you have books in there that are about things like the atonement. Justification. Imputed righteousness. That's a good one, isn't it? There's a book on imputed righteousness in there. Wait, 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 stay seated. Please don't run. Don't hurt anyone on your way there. Can I just tell you, if, 
if you, if you don't know, if, if you're listening right now and you're going, what did he just say? <laughs> imputed what? Is that like a disease? If you don't know what imputed righteousness is, I know that's a big fancy sounding word. And listen, if you're, if you're new to Christianity, there, there, there should be time for us to grow in all these things. But I look around the room here and I know a lot of the faces in the room and a lot of you are not new to Christianity. Imputed righteousness has everything to do with whether or not you're going to get before God in prayer. Your understanding of it has everything to do with whether or not you're going to get around God and pray. If you don't understand that, if you don't understand the atonement, that, that big word, that big theological word, will just let all you think tank people sort that kind of stuff out. If you don't get these things, your prayer life will suffer. Because when you bump into need, which is where we're at, right? Your movement is toward a throne of grace. And you need to own both of those words. If you're going to move toward that, you've got to own both of those words. I need to understand this throne. And I need to understand grace and what it really is. Let me do this as we close today. Perhaps the place where you are today is saying, hey, Keith, I want to, I want to grow in, in understanding what God's throne really is and what his grace really is as well. But I'm here today and I'm, I'm most in touch with my need in my life. That's what, that's what I came in troubled by. Carrying that around, facing it, feeling like uh, I'm in one of those situations you described earlier. I'm here staring at something that I'm going, I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do this. I don't, I don't have the ability to overcome it. I can't control that person's will. I can't change. I, I can't pay this bill. I can't meet that need. I can't fix something that was terribly done that I was involved with. That's what need feels like. So here's what I want to do. I want want us to spend some time praying together. I want us to install this as a default setting. When you encounter need, the default setting is not supposed to be worry. It's supposed to be movement toward a throne of grace. And we're going to get a chance to learn a little bit more about this in the coming weeks. But this morning, I I just want us to first put our hands on need And then I I just want each of us to take a step towards that throne of grace. Okay, let's let's stand up together and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, for every person here this morning who is familiar with feeling vulnerable, uncertain, fearful, troubled by a new set of events, questioning how something good can come out of something that feels so broken. 
Lord, maybe there are some here who need is a monthly word. It's every month wondering, will we make it to the end of the month? For some, it's something they're carrying around in their body, their physical needs. It's a question of what will this turn into? How long will I overcome this? Is there anything else wrong? Am I going to beat this? Lord, these are moments of need. Lord, there are young people here who look out into their future and there's just too many questions. Financial questions, job questions, relationship questions, marriage questions. Lord, there are elderly folks here whose physical conditions have changed and changed quickly. And they stare into the future and they wonder, am I going to be able to take care of myself? I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. And I'm afraid I am. Lord, this is what need feels like. Oh, Lord, I don't, I don't like the way that feels. But I'm a creature made to need my creator. So, Lord, would you help us this morning? Lord, we're right now we're just staring at our needs together. Lord, would you help us? Would you guard us from letting the next step that we take be down a road of vain imaginations? The movement that we make be towards fear and anxiety, doubt and unbelief. Lord, we're staring at these needs. These are needs in our lives, Lord. They're real. And right now, Lord, what we've heard this morning is that we need to take a step toward your throne, your throne of grace. an access that we never could have imagined that we could have, but has been given to us by the righteousness of Christ on our behalf, now imputed to us, giving us the same access that he has. Therefore, we do come with confidence. Lord, would you help us to come this morning? Lord, some of us are here and we're recognizing that I have stared at my need and taken it to the altar of fear and taken it to the throne of worry. But I, I have not taken it to the throne of grace. I'm going to ask you to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you to, to come and take your need to God's throne. And I'm going to let this platform up here be a place for you just to bring the need. And, and, and I want to ask you, maybe you haven't thought about this and maybe this is just the start of something, but I want you to, I want you to fill your mouth with arguments. Because if this is valuable to the kingdom of God, you have things to argue. 
If this is something that brings glory to God in your life, you have something to argue before him. So for all who are here who are recognizing I have need that needs to come before the throne of God's grace, would you, would you step out from where you are? Would you come find a place here, kneel before God's presence and present your need to him? You know, two vital things that are part of our praying is that we recognize we have a need that needs to get before God. It needs to be given to him. That can be done individually. It doesn't always require anybody but us to do that. But when we encounter our needs, sometimes God is going to also call on us to receive intercession, to have others to pray for us. Maybe even you would leave this throne today, if you will, and ask others to pray with you about this need. So I want to invite, maybe if you're here this morning, you're not sensing that that there's a need that God's calling you to present to God this morning, but but there's somebody up here that, that you're walking with or you just feel led for some reason to come and pray with them. Can I ask you to, to come and, and, and pray with them about this area of need and allow the Holy Spirit to awaken some things in you as you pray in faith, lay hold of God's promises. Maybe you could come as their attorney and make an argument for them on their behalf in an area that maybe has been a struggle and full of fear and doubt, but you can make that argument for them. So if you're here and God would use you to intercede, would you come out from where you are? Just You're welcome to come. You're sensing something that the Lord's calling you to do. Come pray with these folks that are here as the Lord leads you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart.
Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless Righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. I think there's still some who need to receive from the Lord, so I'm going to dismiss our gathering. You're welcome to stay in the auditorium to join in time of prayer and come minister to anybody who's here. But if you wouldn't mind taking your conversation into the bookstore where you can get imputed righteousness for a really cheap price, that would be helpful.